Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Luke 16, 19 through 31. Listen for what God is saying. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevasse has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rich. Uh, I'm usually the food ministry coordinator this morning, but I am your preacher. Uh, Is this? Yay. (laughs) So... um, so even though Emily's not preaching this morning, uh, you still get to hear a sermon that starts with a story about our daughter, uh, <laughs> Sella. Uh, so, you know, you, you can probably hear it out there. Um, one of the things that kind of seems obvious, but not, uh, that you don't really quite anticipate um, when you become a parent is like the sheer amount that you have to watch and listen to your kid play the game of tag. Um, and then there's Sella who, like, she really loves Tag. Um, if Tag had a neighborhood commissioner, um, it would be Sella. Like, at times it seems that her mission in life is to organize a game of Tag wherever she goes. And um, it's, like, made her kind of a, a fearless person. She's kind of like the community, like, she's a future, co- like, community organizer. Because what she'll do is, She'll approach any kid between the ages of two and, I don't know, 15 at the park and say, hey, my name's Sela. Do you want to play tag? And if they hesitate, she'll touch them and say, tag, you're it. <laughs> and, like, and it just like triggers something where that kid, like, 
you know, just drops everything and just like feels compelled to chase after her and Sella's <laughs> got him, right? Um, and, uh, but once she's gathered enough kids, it gets a little more complicated because usually the, the group of kids that she's gathered are like uh, a lot older than she is. And so then they have to decide who's actually it, right? Um, and so, you know, it, the, you'll hear the familiar phrase, one, two, three, not it. Um, but uh, depending on the age range of kids, like this, they might have to redo this over and over again. If like the youngest kid ends up being it, which is always the case because they're usually the slowest, um, <laughs> then uh, then th this cycle of one, two, three, not it goes long, and they're like trying to make different rules so that like it gets massaged. But uh, and because wh whoever ends up being it says, no, we need to do it again. We like didn't time it right or whatever. Um, except, you know, if the oldest kid is it, then he's like, ah, I can catch them all, and it's no big deal, right? Um, and you're probably wondering what this has to do with uh, our courageous conversations. Uh, this is our sermon series about anti-racism and racism in America, and at, in our church here, uh, as we're attempting to become an anti-racist congregation, um, and our commitment to it. But... Uh, I tell this story because, in a way, racism in America is like a giant game of one, two, three, not it, right? Every time something racist happens or clear evidence of racism and racist outcomes are presented, a bunch of people shout out, not it, right? Even when they're clearly it. Um, <laughs> like, we've had multiple politicians this year, not just the one, but multiple politicians this year who have been caught like in blackface or saying something really racist, and then the next thing they say is, I got an x-ray and the doctor said there's not a racist bone in my body, right? <laughs> if you Google uh, racist bone, uh, don't have a racist bone in my body, there's a whole YouTube compilation <laughs> of different politicians and uh, celebrities and famous people saying, saying that, those exact words, right? It's like there's a radiologists out there, and their job is to look for the racist bone, and uh, you know, they look for it, and they, then you know, they get to say, I'm clear, uh, I don't have a racist bone in my body, right? Um, you know, and, uh, and just like, furthermore, these people, like, when they get caught, they take great offense at the suggestion that somebody calls them racist, right? It's like, calling someone racist is like, worse than actually being a racist. Um, but this is the world we live in, right? And it's Halloween time, so if you're looking for a really scary costume, right, just make a t-shirt, just write the words, you're racist on it, right? <laughs> and people will run away, right? <laughs> Except for the guy in a skeleton costume who says, nope, see, not a racist bone in my body, right? <laughs> So, like, in the American imagination, it seems that admitting uh, that you're racist is basically admit that you're going to hell, right, in theological terms. And not just any hell, right? In this passage that we read today, uh, you know, they use the word Hades. And, you know, for those of you guys that know Greek mythology, Hades has multiple levels. There's, like, the good part of Hades that's kind of like heaven, Elysium. But there's a really bad part of Hades that's, like, really reserved for people like Hitler, Ted Bundy and Freddy Krueger. Um, it's called Tartarus, if you're uh, wondering. Um, to admit that you're racist is to declare yourself really out of, outside of God's salvation and that you're 
destined to hang out in fiery, the fiery, torturous part of hell with this guy uh, from our passage today, um, the rich man um, from our reading. I think Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man with purple robes, let's just call him a very privileged man, um, is in part about a man who's actually genuinely surprised to find himself in hell and outside of God's salvation. He finds himself in hell after his failure to, obvious failure to take care of the poor man who's been sitting outside of his gates, Lazarus. Um, different Lazarus than the guy who raises from the dead, but I think you, uh, you, know, you can draw maybe some parallels. But the implication here is that uh, this privileged man is he failed his chance at heavenly salvation by failing to give Lazarus an earthly salvation. All he had to do, it seems, was to help poor Lazarus, and he might have found himself in heaven rather than hell. Now, when we read this parable, it's easy to imagine that this rich man, that this privileged man, is not a very good person. It's easy to imagine that he's a hard-hearted Scrooge who let a man visibly starve outside of his gates. I think we do this, uh, like make these assumptions that are not actually in the text. because we do you know, have this innate sense of divine justice that we believe that this guy did something really bad to deserve this special place in hell. Um, it's easy to not only imagine that he ignored Lazarus, but that he kind of maybe ignored all of God's commands, that he you know, not only just failed to take care of this one guy, but also just like you know, violated all of God's laws. And maybe he even did something so bad that directly contributed to Lazarus's condition as a uh, poor person who died. But I don't actually think this is where Jesus wants our imagination to go. I don't think that Jesus wants to let other privileged people off the hook, um, or maybe even just sort of privileged people off the hook, by attributing motives and actions to this privileged man um, um, that allows us to say, not it. Right? We're not this guy. He's not me. In fact, a few chapters later, a similarly privileged man, a rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus asking about his salvation. And this time, the Gospel of Luke makes it very clear that this man is actually a very good man who uh, still finds himself outside of God's salvation. So let's actually make some positive assumptions about this guy. First, uh, let's assume that he actually was actually a very generous person, that he gave his full tithe to the synagogue, he donated money to various charitable causes, not just as tax write-offs. He might have given his money and volunteered time to homeless ministry, maybe even serving on its board. Let's assume that this guy, he didn't totally ignore Lazarus, that he might have occasionally given him a dollar or maybe even, you know, the one guy that actually gives a 20 when he asks for it. Um, he might have bought him a sandwich occasionally. And let's even assume that this guy knew Lazarus by name. You know, I know I'm kind of stretching the limits of uh, interpretation, but just try to stick with me. And finally, let's assume that he's like the other privileged guy that comes a few chapters later, and that he is a deeply religious and faithful person. That he's kept all of God's laws, he's thoughtful and contemplative, and has searched out for Jesus to find the true meaning of life? Does this person kind of sound more familiar to us? I think so. I think 
this is a person that might, but this isn't the kind of person that we imagine uh, would like find themselves in hell uh, with a raging thirst. He's, you know, this man is so close, I think, a lot closer to heaven, but yet he's so far. So far that he still ends up, wind, uh, winds up in hell, looking at Lazarus and Abraham um, in heaven. He's so far from salvation and eternal life. So close and yet so far might be a way to describe, you know, UBC when it comes to racism or anti-racism, right? Last year, our church conducted an extensive anti-racism audit through the organization Crossroads. And what we discovered, not unsurprisingly, was that we have a long ways to go before we can call ourselves a truly racially just church. The audit revealed that while there is a lot of racial diversity in our congregation, if you'll dig a little bit, a little bit deeper, you'll find that there are racial disparities in power, inclusion, and overall experience. This x-ray that we kind of took of ourselves shows that there are racist bones to be found in our body. And that this is not exactly a white supremacist free zone, even though there are no people in uh, white cone hats. We have a long ways to go before we can truly call ourselves an inclusive church. When we say we're bold, inclusive, intelligent, this is a vision that we have for ourselves and a claim that we want to live into. But we're not there yet. Maybe we won't fully get there. Yes, our church is diverse, but racially just and truly inclusive, you know, we've got a ways to go. So close, yet so far. And the same goes for our society that we live in. There are many places in our city and nation where diversity exists that gives the appearance of inclusion and beloved community. In our own neighborhood here, neighborhoods here, like Hyde Park, black, white, Asian, Latinx folks live and work and in close proximity. We eat at the same restaurants, shop at the same grocery stores, work at the same places, even attend the same church. But peel back the curtain, and there's a deep chasm between the people from various racial backgrounds experience the world. So close, yet so far. So how do we, like this privileged man today, get from here to over there? How do we bridge that huge chasm or Crevasse, as our uh, scripture calls it. If we look at today's gospel reading and the rest of the gospels, Jesus actually paints a pretty grim and pessimistic view that we can ever get there. Jesus says that it's actually harder for a privileged man to enter the gates, uh, enter the kingdom of God, than for a camel to uh, squeeze through the eye of a needle. Right? We've all grew up with this text. For those of you who grew up in church, I should say. Seriously, Jesus just doesn't like a privileged person's chances of making it into God's kingdom. <laughs> he, he just doesn't. It's not, you know, the good news of the gospel is kind of relative, right? Um, Jesus, uh, um, he doesn't, he, but Jesus also doesn't like uh, Lazarus' chances of being saved from his poverty and estrangement from society. If this were specifically about race, Jesus probably doesn't like our chances of overcoming racism, and forming inclusive, beloved communities. So we're presented with this dilemma in the scripture. Like, because of this pessimism, is the dilemma is that our salvation is collective, right? Because the challenge seems so big, 
you know, uh, we Christians have this tendency to move our salvation, not just Christians, but people in general, when they're confronted with huge challenges, tend to make their salvation about the self, about the individual, that we, our personal piety, our personal virtues or actions will be what saves us. If I'm a good enough person, then that's what will save me. Right? But according to our text today, the privileged man is never saved until Lazarus is saved. Eternal salvation does not exist apart from earthly salvation. In stark racial terms, there's no salvation for white folks until there's complete justice for black folks. So how do we get there if someone like Jesus, God, says we basically have no chance? How do we get from here to there? What kind of transformation needs to take place? You know, I believe that the transformation that Jesus is calling us to today is to, one, transform our storytelling about God and our relationship to God. Normally, when we talk about God, each of us imagines that we're the main characters in our relationship to God. We need to transform that. Up to this point in my sermon about Jesus' parable, I've almost exclusively talked about the privileged man as the subject of this parable. I've asked us to imagine that the, uh, this privileged man, uh, us to imagine him in the most relatable way possible. And I think it's good for good, privileged Christian folk to relate to him, but there's you know, a lot of irony, I think, in focusing so much attention on this guy. But our eyes are drawn to him. But it's ironic because I think Jesus is clearly not that concerned about the privileged man or his salvation. In this parable, Jesus doesn't even give this guy a name, right? It's just some rich dude. Also, Jesus isn't exactly the kind of guy hanging out with men dressed in fine purple linens. In Jesus' parables in life, Jesus is constantly asking us to pay attention to Lazarus, not the privileged man. Lazarus has a name. He's not just another homeless dude. Jesus knows him by name. Lazarus is the guy that gets to hang out with him and Abraham in heaven, not the privileged guy. The privileged in God's story are not the main characters. The oppressors are not the main characters. The poor, the sick, the orphan, the widow, they're the main characters of God's story and God's relationship with humanity. They're the ones for whom the gospel announces good news. You know, the good newsiness of the gospel is relative to your privilege. Because he says, yes, the good news is the last shall be first, but also, you know, the first shall be last, right? And so here's the problem with focusing on this guy so much. It's that when we focus on the privileged person, we can't help but focus on his salvation, right? Like, you know, all the commentaries that I read focus on what must this rich man do to get saved? You know, why, why isn't he able to get saved? You know, but, uh, but it seems impossible, because it seems impossible. There's too much pride, too much guilt, too much shame, you know? So eventually, like, he has to run away from being called a racist, so he, you know, will say something like, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And we can't help but feel hopeless about privilege giving up power and taking responsibility for the oppression and injustice encountered by others. But Jesus today, I think, is subtly telling us and challenging us 
to stop looking over there at the privileged man. Stop focusing on his salvation. Instead, look over there at Lazarus. Focus on him. Feed him. Clothe him. House him. Tent him. Include him. Get to know him. Stop spending your imagination resources litigating what's in the privileged man's heart. Instead, use your imagination and resources for Lazarus's justice and wholeness. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 25, Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as strangers and welcome you, and, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Let your imagination go here. Jesus is basically saying, God's not over here with a privileged man. God's over there with Lazarus. You want, to stay, you want to spend time with God, you want to look for God, look for God where Lazarus is. Stop worrying about the privileged man's salvation and instead focus on Lazarus. God's not here. God's over there. Stop trying to be saved from white privilege and supremacy. Your own white privilege and supremacy. Instead, seek justice and reparations for those oppressed by it. I think this has important consequences as we think about race and inclusion and how to transform ourselves. American historian Ibram X. Kendi talks extensively about how we focus too much when we define racism based on what the perpetrators do and what's in their hearts rather than the victims and the outcomes of racism. Because we focus so much on the perpetrators of racism, we spend way too much trying to figure out if someone's racist and behave with racist intentions. We spend too little time actually dealing with injustice and the victims of racism and the injustices that they face. And so according to Kendi, he prefers to define racism this way, that racism is a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to racist inequity, racial inequity and are substantiated by racist ideas. Racist policy is any policy that leads to racial inequity and racist outcomes. Your intent and consciousness do not matter. What matters is the racial inequity and injustice. Pay attention over here, not over there. Intent and consciousness do not matter. I think this is, in part, what Jesus is trying to say about the privileged man in this parable. It doesn't matter if he's really a good man or a really bad man. It doesn't matter that if he prayed for Lazarus or judged and condemned him. It doesn't matter if Lazarus was a good man or a bad man. Either way, Lazarus suffered and died, and it's the privileged man who's implicated by it. The entire community, and not just Lazarus, the entire community is implicated by Lazarus' suffering. God is with Lazarus. You know, scholarship for a long time and the way you know, people talk about racism has defined racism as prejudice plus power plus privilege, right? So, you know, this equation is what uh, kind of differentiates the way... Uh, Racism is experienced by people of color versus people with white privilege, right? But it's also an equation that really makes it easy for the privileged to opt out of being implicated by racism. Because if you don't have prejudice, then, you know, you just have 
power and privilege, and therefore I'm no longer a racist, right? So, you know, if you just declare yourselves free of racist bones, then um, power and privilege by itself don't make you a racist. But of course, this also means that um, if we don't like make everyone take this x-ray and prosecute all and round up all the hidden racists with racist bones, then, then nobody who has benefited from racism has to take responsibility for the legacy of it. For the legacy of slavery, segregation, internment, immigration policy, racist housing policy, stop and frisk, or any of the myriad of racist outcomes that are plainly obvious. The only people who are left to take responsibility for racism are the victims. But if we opt for Ibram X. Kendi's definition, then nobody can really run away from being touched or implicated by racism. Even if you're a victim of it, you, we are all part of a racist society because the evidence of racial injustice is all around us. We don't have to hunt down and round up all the racists. This means that everyone is responsible and not just the victims. Jesus doesn't leave any room in this story for the privileged man's excuses. He was responsible full stop, and so were his neighbors. Folks, you know, we're a community of faith, but I believe that a community of faith, it's not really defined, you know, based on our text today, that it's not defined by its beliefs or our intents or our consciousness or our individual spiritualities. Rather, it's defined by our faithfulness, our faithfulness to God, our faithfulness to our neighbors, right? You know, the Bible doesn't actually use the word faith that often. It talks more about God's faithfulness. Faithfulness is relational, not doctrinal. This means that our faithfulness is expressed to each other um, in our faithfulness to the vulnerable and the oppressed. This means taking responsibility for racism and committing to the ongoing work of justice. Decentering privilege and focusing on taking responsibility for injustice is the only way I think God makes true hope possible. Otherwise, God doesn't like our chances because we keep looking for God in all the wrong places. Our faithfulness through responsibility open up, opens up God, avenues for God's grace to pierce through. We can look at privilege beyond guilt and shame and with humility and candor rather than defensiveness and denial. We can look at and acknowledge our true histories. We don't have to pretend that the Civil War wasn't about slavery even if like, they officially declared it was. God, I believe, is calling us to decenter whiteness. Instead, find God in blackness. Find God in those outside the norms, outside privilege, outside immigration status, citizenship status. God, searching, search for God among the oppressed and not the oppressors. God's not here. God is over there. You know, when a young Nazi-era German theologian, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you might know, came to study at Union Theological Seminary in New York, he famously said, conservatives love this story, he said, there's no theology here, right? He's, this guy came and said, God's not here, which of course, you know, delighted uh, certain conservatives, um, but, you know, turns out he didn't find God in conservative seminaries either, but, um, 
Instead, uh, according to Reggie Williams, who's a professor at McCormick Seminary, um, Bonhoeffer finds God in Harlem, in New York, specifically at Abyssinian Baptist Church um, and other black churches. Bonhoeffer found in this worship, music, and preaching uh, programs and community, a black Jesus that struggled for joy, life, and freedom from oppression. His, Bonhoeffer's experience here profoundly changed his theology. And more importantly, it, it also changed him, right, to do the kind of work that God was calling us to. He came to the U.S. as kind of a cocky, very privileged academic that was immediately dismissive of his American peers. Honestly, he sounds like a jerk, like he did. But he left with a profound sense of responsibility. And leave, he left his studies to go back to Germany to fight the Nazis, and he was martyred for it. His faith had transformed from something that was focused on academic theology and instead focused on Christian community and responsibility for the vulnerable. Bonhoeffer stopped looking for God in privileged spaces, in ivory towers, and found God in those who struggled for justice and wholeness. God was not at Union, but God was at Abyssinian. God was not here, God was over there. When our congregation declares that we're attempting to be an anti-racist congregation, it's not about the salvation of those implicated by white supremacy. It's not about virtue signaling. It's not about getting a no racist bone certification. Rather, it's an acknowledgement that racism is real, its impacts and outcome exist, and ultimately we're to take responsibility for it. So will we find God? Will we search for God? Um, as we go through this series, as we, not just this series, but this ongoing work of becoming an anti-racist congregation, will we, uh, will we follow God? Will we search for God? Will we look for God in the right places? Um, let us hope so. Our salvation depends on it.